I guess even even within games, it's a little bit of a sleeper hit, I think. Yeah. Because it's been out a few years now, and it's only now sort of making the rounds and kind of catching people's attention and things like that. So I've even been telling a few of my gamer friends about it and being like, get into it. It's so good. Welcome to a special bonus episode of The Dead Drop. This is a spoiler cast for the game Inscription from Daniel Mullins and Devolver Digital. It's a new kind of episode for the show. Perfect for those of you who enjoyed the mysterious release late last year and needed to unpack some of your discoveries. I love games like Inscription, Assemblance and other mysterious games that seem impenetrable but hold a wealth of mystery beneath the surface. I've also brought on a friend of the show to discuss it. Kara Tune, a visual artist working for Fire Monkeys and EA, and a longtime friend of mine, has finished the game and needed to talk about it, so we recorded this episode not long ago, so we can share our discoveries with you. If you like this spoiler cast and would be glad to hear more, do me a favor and share this with anyone you know who is interested in inscription and games like it. And of course, you can share your thoughts directly with me at the podcast email deaddroppod at gmail.com. Now, pull up a seat by the fire and warm yourself. This is a long story. I mean, we're having yeah. a Halloween party at my house on the 29th, but um, but I think it's just more um, tends to be little pocket neighborhoods where like everybody knows each other and everybody has a lot of kids. That tends to be where um, more of the Halloween things seem to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm. that totally makes sense too. Mm. Um, but look, uh, that's probably going to be the start of the dead drop. Uh, welcome everybody to the Dead Drop Podcast, <laughs> your one-stop shop for video game news. Uh, I'm usually your host, Matthew Bliss, but this time I'm joined by someone new, someone that you haven't heard on the podcast before, only because it's only been me so far. This is the first of hopefully a, a number of episodes we can run on the podcast with other people, people that I've met through the gaming space and outside, potentially podcasting too, to unwrap some of the more interesting games that have come across our way. One of those games is Inscription, which you may have seen came from Daniel Mullins Games last year as a bit of a, a secret release. It kind of came out of the woodwork from nowhere, which uh, we'll talk about today. But who you've been hearing so far is Kara. Welcome, Kara, to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, it's me, Kara. <laughs> Kara Tune. <laughs> yes. And you have been one of the I guess self-professed fans of the show so far that you've been um, you've been getting in touch with me a lot and telling me how much you enjoy the podcast. Not that this is the pandering bit of the podcast, of course, but no, no, no um, of course not, of course not. <laughs> your enjoyment, I should say, has has fueled a lot of the fire that kept this podcast going. I Heck think. Yeah. Aww. In my mind. Thanks, buddy. So, That's so nice. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and what better reward to be able to come onto an episode of the show and and talk about. One of the top games that you've got for 2022, right? Heck yeah. Um, yeah, I, um, 
I work in the games industry, so um, this podcast has been like a really great way for me to keep in touch with everything that's been happening in the games, like writ large, and um, making sure that my facts are sort of all straight. And it's just it's just very very useful to me. Um, yeah, that's really good, and I'm glad it is too because the podcasting public is very hard to tap into. Heck so it's yeah. really great to to hear from someone who who really gets a lot of benefits out of the show. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm hoping to get more more gamers in here. Come on, gamers, get in here. <laughs> yes, well, the, uh, a couple of weeks, or depending on when this episode releases, there's a brand new episode type that I want to try and get going called the the Intel Network episodes, where uh, the diligent listeners like yourself submit some questions that are a bit interesting and require a bit more research, and you know we find out more of the weird and wonderful things of gaming. And Jordan Reed who got in touch with me by email and via Twitter as well, inspired me to make the episode on Scorn, which was, I can't remember what date the episode came out. I think it was the 10th or the 11th of August for anyone listening who's curious to find out a bit more. Um, But yeah, Scorn is a really weird looking game, but even weirder is their progress from uh, development to completion, which it hasn't released just yet. It's coming out October this year. But um, wow! Yeah, have a listen to that episode if you'd like to find out a little bit more. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out. It looks very familiar to me. It looks like a really old game. I saw a review about though. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it was it was featured on one of the Xbox Game Pass showcases earlier this year. Mm, as, okay. Because yeah. it's coming to Game Pass day one. Yes. So. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. All right. I'm going to check it out for sure. Awesome. Well, before we get stuck into talking about inscription, which is a very large topic, um, could you tell us a bit more about you or your gaming tastes and what you what you like to play usually? Yeah, for sure. Um, Just to rezone us a little bit. Yes. So um, I work in the games industry. Um, I work for Fire Monkeys, which is a company a company owned by Electronic Arts. Um, and I personally work on the Sims free play as an artist. Um, so I build assets for the game, um, and I help, um, I guess, unify the outsourcing artists work with our internal work and sort of, um, make sure that it all kind of, yeah, that it all fits seamlessly into the game together, which is nice. I've just been, yeah, doing this for about, I don't know, I've been in the games industry for about Four or five years now. Yeah. That's massive. Yeah. <laughs> Do you find it takes a lot of work to realign the outsourced artist's work to to the Sims 3 motif? Um, yes and no. Um, our style, the style of Sims Freeplay, if you ever have a look at it, is like, as with like most of the Sims, it's sort of fairly realistic. It's like fairly close to real life things um you know it's not sort of bubbly or cutesy or you know um gothic it's you know tends to be very sort of close to reality um so i think finding the level of detail in an object and making sure that they all have that kind of similar level of attention to detail is probably the thing that i tend to do the most um and making sure that that kind of all works um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting challenge, I guess. Um, but because by and large, everybody on the planet kind of knows what 
if you say uh, a dinner chair, what you're imagining is like fairly similar all over, you know what I mean? So there's there's a decent amount of like understanding that's already that already exists between you and the outsourcer. It's just about sort of honing it, I guess, and making sure that you knock it and knock it until it's just kind of exactly right. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. I can't help but think of Plato's cave and the platonic ideal of chairs when you mention <laughs> something like that. But I don't want to get too deep into philosophy with this one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now, we originally met in high school. And yes. I know from that time, you have been a prolific artist. And uh-huh. anyone that follows you on Twitter will also know that you get into the artistry a bit as well. Yes. And you sell some of those works on merchandise, don't you? Oh, yeah. I sell them um, on Redbubble and sometimes I do commissions as well. But um, yeah, it's nice. I mean, <laughs> Redbubble's funny. This is like really off topic, but Redbubble's like, I don't know. I think I made something like, for example, 500 plus dollars in the last year. And, and that's not a like, it's not a brag or anything. Um, but like, mm. I think what I actually ended up making in terms of money was like $50 or something like so the overhead that Redbubble takes is huge. <laughs> wow. Um, it's much more sort of profitable to set up your own store on your own website and organize your own sort of inventory. Um, but I just don't really mm. have the time to be running something like that. So <laughs> I don't tend to point people there too much because it's, I don't know, it almost feels like it's more for them than it is for me, which is ironic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess the the choice then it becomes not whether you make tons of money, but whether the, like the getting your work out there in different ways with your name attached to it becomes more of an advantage down the line. I hear stories like that a lot, like um, the copyright thing with Redbubble and places like that too is apparently really bad. Uh, Like you post a design and then someone copies it and then sells it and then tells you to take yours down because- they're pretending yeah. it's their IP and not yours and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I had a lot of problems with that. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> Back on subject. <laughs> yeah. If, if you listening want to check out um, some of Kara's work and maybe purchase them, I'll add some links in the show notes for you to check out her work. And um, what's your Twitter handle, if you're happy to share it? Oh, sure. Kara, it is. I mean, I think it's just Cara Tune. It is at Cara Tune. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that is, that's like getting uh, your first name and last name at hotmail.com. Exactly. Or, like or even exactly. Gmail. Yeah. Perfect. So if you're uh, listening, go and type it out now or jump in the show notes and it'll all be linked down there if you're curious to, to see stuff out of yeah. this wonderful guest, not just hear them talk. I don't know. What's the, what's the, way to say that in podcasting i don't know i'll figure it out <laughs> yeah well yeah you'll get there it'll just be like ah oh, just check out the stuff Woo. <laughs> check out the stuff the things on the, <laughs> the awesome guest on, on the thing does cool stuff very nice <laughs> um <clears throat> okay so that kind of sets the scene mm-hmm. just tell tell us a little bit about the games that you tend to enjoy as well just so okay. that we can get yeah an idea. Um, I tend to enjoy sort of larger adventure games with pretty strong narrative so games like Horizon Zero Dawn, games like um, The Last of Us. Um, so funny. Whenever I think of games, I can't think of any. And then I'm always like, I've played like a million of these. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm exactly the same. 
Yeah. I'm even trying to help you here and I can't think of any specific ones. Yeah, I'm like, well, obviously there's like, um, you know, all of the Zelda games, well, not all the Zelda games, but, you know, the Zelda games and then a bunch of Nintendo games. So, you know, Mario Odyssey and um, Paper Mario and um, Luigi's Haunted Mansion and sort of all of the big games that come out I tend to play as long as they're like fairly narrative focused. And then um, Mm. obviously I have a cohort of mobile games that I play um, because that is my work area. Yeah, that's your workspace. Yeah, exactly. So like Plants vs. Zombies I used to play. Sometimes I play Love vs. Pies. Right now I'm playing Slay the Spire a lot. Slay the Spire is an excellent one. It's so good. Very addictive. But yeah, I was going to mention that after at the end of this where I was like, when you had the question, like, what, what are you doing to, as a self for not having inscription anymore? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it, it's a good segue too, because Slay the Spire is a card-based game. And yeah. um, inscription is very much that, while also not being that. Yes, yes. Maybe we should start talking about now. I don't, I don't like beating around the bush. Yeah. It'd be good to start talking about this big mystery game. Yeah. Now, it should be said that this podcast episode is labelled a spoiler cast. For you listening, that means that we will indeed be spoiling content from this game. Uh, so if you want to jump in and play the game, which I'm sure both of us would highly recommend that you do at some point or another, jump out now, give the game a go, get as far as you feel like you need to, and then you can jump back here and have a listen to the episode and see what you think. Um, at the same time, if you don't want to play the game, you can just keep listening to our experience and, and how yeah. awesome it was. Or if spoilers don't bother you, you can also continue on and then play as well. <laughs> That's it. Because I think after our discussion, what people, if they have been listening, will realize is that there is, this game is very much an iceberg. Oh, yeah. Where you can play the top 10% and then you get to the end, you kind of dust your hands off and you're like, okay, that's it. All done. And then you you look online for what other people have been up to and there's like 90% that you didn't even know happened in it. (laughs) (laughs) It's... One of those really weird ones. So, yes, that was the spoiler warning for anyone Mm. listening. Mm. Jump out now if you don't wish to be spoiled. Kara. Yeah. If you were describing Inscription as a game to someone who hadn't played it before, Mm -hmm. how would you describe it? Um, I would say that it was like a spooky um, deck building game. But I think, yeah, what I've been saying to most people is that it's better to just play it and sort of see what it's like rather than assuming what you think it will be like. Because before playing um, Inscription, deck building games really weren't my sort of bag, I guess. Not even when you Mm -hmm. think about as, as crazy as this is. Like even Pokemon or like um, Yu-Gi-Oh or um, any of the other kind of big card-based games, I never really got super, super into them. But Inscription just has this really like clever way of just like making it really addictive to play like the deck building part of it for sure. But yeah. I think it has a great way of giving you some positive feedback whenever you do anything as opposed to feeling severe punishment when you do something that's a bit weird or a bit unusual, it's quite forgiving. Yeah. At least in in the initial section when you're playing stuff. Oh, yes. Yeah. But yeah, I think uh, 
a spooky fun deck building game. I think if I had to do it in a real sort of like nutshell sort of thing. Spooky without being scary. Yeah. I know some people like myself have described it a bit like an escape room as well. Yes, yeah. With that element on top. Because um, it is, I guess, technically a first-person game. You are placed in front of a kind of darkened, barely visible creature that's kind of describing a game to you like a like a, a Dungeons and Dragons, whatever you call those people. Campaign? Oh, DM? Yeah. DM, yes. Um, kind of like one of those, describing the game to you and playing as your opponent in all of these uh, card games that you play with a deck that you build as you complete and progress through the different aspects of the game. There's also extra mechanics that get rolled in on top. And in particular, if you are familiar with Yu-Gi-Oh! as a card game, it is very similar to that in a lot of elements, actually, where you are sacrificing squirrel cards or any other type of card with an attribute attached to it to play more cards. Yeah. So it's a very simple mechanic. And that's probably as simply as I could describe it but oh yeah for sure um, as you and i both know there's there's far more mechanics uh-huh. to this game than you can so imagine much more so much more and i mean i think just quickly adding to that i think perhaps the reason why it is so easy to get into it even if it's not your usual stomping ground is that they they start the bar so low like they're just like Here's two things that you have to do, just like two things. You have to sacrifice these things to get these things, and that's all we're going to tell you, to beat these things. Like, And then they mm. slowly, slowly kind of fold in extra complexity, but they do it at such a pace that it's really satisfying as you discover new things, but it's not overwhelming yeah. in that you're like, I don't even know what to do. You always know what to do. You always know what cards you should play, and the strategy involved in it is always like engaging. And not confusing. And I think the, the great thing that it does share with Slay the Spire is that it's it's a deck building game, but you don't start building your decks before you get to the game. You start with, you know, your generic starting deck and in Inscription it's a couple of extra cards that you can get in the escape room environment that we'll describe in a tick. But you build up the kind of deck you want as you get rewards for playing more and more of the game in any single run. Yeah. And you've got your insects or I think it's like elk or wolf kind yes. of types. Yes. And then you've got the um, the tanner and the, the pelt master. I can't remember their names. There's so many of them. Yeah. That allows you to exchange pelts for more of those cards. Yeah. And then you also have, it, it's, it's the witch who gives you a totem as well. Yeah. Yeah. That gives your creatures different, different abilities based on those effects. And- but- Additional abilities, yeah. Yeah, and you've got submerged and you've got flying and flying defense <laughs> and, you know, insect. You've got yeah. uh, recursion. You've got mirror. You've got a bunch of these different different types that you yeah. can add to your cards to improve them. Or yeah. you can even sacrifice cards in certain nodes on the play to, to you know, sacrifice a card and give those effects to another card. Yeah. And there's, um, you can pay with blood, which is when you sacrifice creatures for other creatures. Or uh, as you as you do that, you can also accumulate bones, and you can use bones to you, like play other kinds of creatures. It's like a whole thing. But they really start you like super simply, and then they slowly, slowly add all of these things that we've been discussing on top. Which just yeah, it's just a very yeah. nice play experience. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And going back to it again, 
I did find starting again that I didn't run into any barriers. Like I didn't lose unless it was a scripted loss, but they even prevent your progress in your first run from going past a boss if you're not, if you don't have the bits that you would otherwise need to progress in order to keep going. Because in that first run of that first act, you've got three bosses. You've got the miner, you've got the fisherman, and you've got, ooh, the the trapper. Yes, that's right, the trapper. And then the final boss, of course, after that. Mm. Though the not so final boss you I know, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but but it does do a really good job of gating your progress there and making sure that you do other things as well. Yes. But you can get up from that table and walk around the room that you're trapped in and you kind of start with the table and this figure emerging from the darkness. And when you step up from the table, you realize you're in a a log cabin, a wooden cabin with a door with flashing behind it. And you've got a safe and some puzzles in the room. You've got a spinning globe, a skull with teeth in it, which is also a mechanic we haven't talked about yet. Um, And do stop me if I mention something that you haven't discovered as well, because that's going to be one of the biggest things when you discover things or hear about things that you had no idea about, which... I imagine yeah. you were pretty thorough in that first section. I definitely was very thorough. It was interesting, actually. So I played through first with um, my very good friend, Alfie, who you also know. <laughs> um, and then Damien played through, my brother, and we watched him play through. And um, he got a lot of advice from us about a few different sort of bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were, because he... I I discovered things as I went along. So it took me quite a long time to get through the whole game because I was, I wasn't really looking things up. I was just trying to like figure it out as I went along. Um, But because he, he got a lot of that information from me, he did end up missing a couple of bits and pieces because he went kind of too quickly. And there was, there is a part of the game that I believe I braced past that I, I only don't know. I don't know what happens in that area, so maybe you know, and I would I would want to know. Um, so I'll okay. have to ask you about it later. But <laughs> is this in Act One? No, it's you're... in Act Two. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, we'll, we'll progress to Act Two, I guess, in in a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's so easy to get spoiled for aspects of the game and have the progression end up being a little bit weird. Because yeah. I know that I did that to myself. I hadn't been recommended inscription by someone like yourself who describes it as a get in there and have a go at it don't look at anything yeah i you know i wanted to find out a little bit because there was so much hype around the the game reviewer space at the time Mm. and there was some some pre-release play that had been released and stuff that i was looking at and i had stopped myself immediately after seeing this but i knew one of the orientations for the the clock that was on the wall ah yes 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 and I believe it was the, the combination on the clock that gives you the ring. Yes, yes. Which I think technically you're not supposed to be able to do until you unlock the dagger, which is on the back wall, That's which correct. you only only get if you free the wolf. That's correct. Which you have to do by retrieving, I think it's the stray wolf card. Yes. And having its cage broken. Yes. By depleting its defense on the field. Yeah. And you use that dagger in play to remove your eye, which is so eye-watering. I just, I can barely look at it when it happens. They do that so incredibly well. (laughs) The animations in this game are spectacular. Yeah. You remove your eye with that dagger, 
with yeah. one of the extra items you can use and it helps you win the game as well because yes. we haven't actually mentioned that yet. It's kind of a life point system with on the scales instead. So you have to have a, a significant advantage over your op opponent in terms of the teeth that are acquired based on the attack versus defense. Actually, no, it's direct attacks to the other person, sorry. Yes. In ignorance of any creatures on the field that weigh down those scales. And if mm. it weighs too far on your side, then you, you lose, lose. Yeah. or too far on their side, then they lose. And you can also use items to manipulate that. So the dagger is one of those where you use the weight of your eyeball yeah. to weigh down the scales, which is <laughs> actually significant. It's a great, great little tool if you don't mind losing your right peripheral vision. Just for a moment. <laughs> yeah. And then you can extract <laughs> your teeth as well. Yeah. And um, actually, have that be just one little point. I'll tell you a funny story about that. So sure. the reason why I ended up buying inscription was because I was going to get my wisdom teeth out. Um, right. And I was like, I'm going to need a game to play while I'm like stuck in inside, not doing anything, recovering from the surgery. Because I knew that I would be feeling pretty rotten the first few days, I was like, I'll just play a little bit so that I can... Um, get used to the gameplay so that when I'm feeling like mm -hmm. really fuzzy and whatnot, I'll still be able to play. Yep. <laughs> and so leading up to this operation, I think I played three or four hours before the operation. I had to watch this animation <laughs> of like the, the <laughs> teeth being like ripped out of the skull. <laughs> and every single time I was just like flinching and being like, oh, because I, <laughs> I knew that it was going to be happening for me in a few days. It was so funny. Like the, the animation is great. The sound design is on oh, point as well. So you don't, so you can't good. see inside your own mouth when you extract that tooth, but no. the noise it makes, it's. The noise and Ugh. the camera, the camera like shake or the camera jerk rather, and then the tooth coming out. It's like very clever, very clever. And it doesn't get old either. Like the, the music that no. they choose, the sound cues that they choose. Ne at no point are you like, oh, I'm so over this sound that I've heard a million times before. I think it's, it's satisfying for those who have a nostalgia for, you know, the placement of game pieces. Yeah. Like when you're playing chess, a lot of the... The sounds that they make in that game are similar to the placement of wooden pieces on a table. Yes, and yes, yes. Which is a big component of the game. Yeah. But yeah, now the sound design is epic. So good. I was kind of hoping your story would be, uh, I, I started playing after my operation <laughs> and uh, I did this mechanic the first time, not realizing how <laughs> incredibly accurate it would be. And I never touched it again, <laughs> even though I had, <laughs> I had it no. in there. No, it's just um, a little bit of pre-punishment <laughs> before getting the operation. Bit of delightful irony. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you've got your escape room bit around the outside, and I don't think I have ever finished off the thought. I, I knew how to orient the clock to get the ring, which yeah. is important towards the end of that stage. Yeah. But uh, what you're meant to do is use the dagger to remove your original eye, and then at the end of a boss battle- they will offer a replacement eye and you can yes. select one that gives you a kind of runic vision kind of yes. thing and allows you to see things in the room, which uh, were kind of like paint, green yes. neon paint things, which, you know, you don't even think about it as a thing until you get a little bit further in the game again. Yeah. I mean, I, gu I guess you don't know about it much more until later on. I feel That's like it. there was there was an interesting picture kind of forming with all of the small bits and pieces like um, 
you pick up this goo at a point in the game and the goo yes. is like, it's like, oh, let me out. I want to get out of here. And, and then it's talking about all oh, my masters coming and things like that. And you're like, who's your master? Because you get the impression it's not the character who you've been playing games against the entire time, that it's another yeah. character. And then when you get the eye after sort of stabbing it out, um, once again, he's like, oh, you've got my master's eye or something like that. And you're like, oh, okay. So it's mm. kind of, it's got an interesting way of leaving a lot of breadcrumbs around to sort of hint that there's a larger world or that there's something else going on without it becoming obvious until you are literally thrust into the second act. And before we get to that second act, I should say that there's, there's a big part of the storytelling that we haven't mentioned yet that there are, well, we kind of glanced off anyway. Um, there are three cards you can get that kind of talk to you through mm. the deck as you play them. Mm. Uh, you, you start off with the stoat, which is like a little weasel ferret type thing. Mm. You've got the, I think it was called the stray wolf, the one that I mentioned you break the cage of and then you get yes. the card out of somewhere else. It's kind of got an eye patch and all that stuff. And there was another card as well. Yeah. I can't recall the, came, the, the name of that card now. It was a beetle, was, I think. Yeah, something like that, like a silk beetle or something like that. Yeah. So th three animals that talk to you, and as you complete some of these tasks we're talking about in the escape room and unlock more things and stab your eye and, you know, talk to the, the jar of goo, uh, <laughs> they start to turn into different types of things. The stoat seems to turn into a computer and the wolf turns into- A man, a like beard, a, man a bearded man sort of creature. There you go. Your memory is- Impeccable. Mine is not good. But <laughs> anyway, we start to see some of those narrative elements emerge from that too. Yeah. And you're kind of like, well, what are these things trying to urge me to, you know, beat this person who's trying to, you know, dungeon master his way to my demise, but still mm. have me play the card games with him? Yeah. And then, of course, you play enough times and you beat uh, the first and then the second and the third boss. And then there's a final section that actually removes you from the table that you've been playing the card games for the longest time. And you take a walk through the forest. Sur surrounding the cabin, yeah, that you've been yes. playing in the whole time. Which you realise when you get to the end of that walk. And yeah, it kind of, it gets that meta recursion loop in your brain a little bit. I think it actually does that incredibly well. Because oh, yeah. as you walk closer to the cabin, there's a massive hand that descends from the from the heavens to offer you a choice or a a boon or an advantage. It's like a special special attribute or technique yeah. that you can add to your deck to improve for the final battle. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm just realizing now as we speak in this very conversation that in that moment, <laughs> it was like you were the one in the game board. So like the entire yes. game that he's been narrating, you have a little figure that you're moving through the maps and you're moving, you know, to the end. And at that, yep. at that point, that's the equivalent of like you being that little that little character and him coming down like as this sort of giant offering you the the boon or the yeah. chance to get the boon, which is crazy. I didn't even think about that. That's so cool. Yeah, it's the, it's the masterful storytelling of it because even if you don't realize it, you kind of immerse yourself into that thinking that you are playing the game and he's playing with you yeah. and trying to get you to do the thing. And I think that that does get achieved fully when you realize oh, I'm walking into a cabin. Yes, and yes. And I've been in a cabin. Yeah. And then you're back at the table again. It's so good. Um, 
Yeah, it is pretty great. <sighs> but then that final battle is against him specifically, and he decides, I'm going to use the moon as a yeah. way to fight you. <laughs> yeah. Though I'm sure there was a, a section before we got to the moon, right? Oh, yeah. there's So with all of the bosses, uh, they have like two, you have to beat two of their lives. So they tend to have, I think they have two different phases of their boss fight. So the first yep. phase will be, uh, it depends on the boss, but the first phase will usually be like a more generalized kind of attacking phase that's like, a bit like the normal game, usually. Um, and then yep. the function of that will change and the boss will have their own specific power that they can use against you. Whereas in this final boss situation, he actually has three lives. And so there's three distinct sections that you kind of have to fight your way through in order to get to this the third and final life, which is the moon. Uh, and that's just you destroying yep. the moon, basically. Yes, has a massive amount of health and you just- Wail away. Yeah. Then you break the moon and once you finish that final battle, there is a film canister thing yeah. that you acquire from the clock, which hopefully you've got when you finish that final fight. You may not have it still if you beat him. Mm. There's the potential to not have it, which I think I did. Like, I think I beat him three or four times before I realized I needed the film canister. Yeah, to do it, and I think that's because I I like hacked the clock yeah, to unlock yeah. all the bits without progressing to get the eye thing because I yeah. really struggled with the eye, the runic eye insertion thing. Yeah, yeah. So I was stuck on Act One for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, whenever you finish or die during a run, he takes you out the back and drags you off, and then takes your picture, and you you're immersed in a card. But this time, you can take his picture by inserting the film and then capture him. And I think the big conceit and I think the offboarding point for a lot of people playing the game is that when you realize that this is just act one of three. Yeah. First of all, once you finish that first portion, you're not taken to the next game section yet. You're taken to a, what appears to be old, old video recording software with saved videos of someone called the Lucky Carter. And you can watch small portions of video that he's recorded himself about different aspects. And this is where the whole meta narrative starts coming into play and can really take you by surprise. Do, do you remember that moment when- uh, Yeah, I loved it. So, so yeah. luckily for me, um, so because I had sort of been figuring things out as I went along, when I did finally get to the point where I beat the final boss in that first section in Act 1, I did have the film on me. So <laughs> it was actually funny. Alfie Good. was <laughs> screaming at me like, take the picture, take the picture. Because <laughs> we thought, uh, we thought Le Leshy, which is, um, which is the, the boss's name, we thought he was going yep. to kill us. Um, <laughs> so we took yeah. the picture um, <clears throat> and then we could move on to the next um, section. Um, and we, yeah, we both just sort of were like, what is happening? Like just sitting in awe of like the fact that there were all these videos. And then, yeah, we just kind of started watching them one by one. And in a way, it, it definitely kind of made sense because when you very, very, very first start the game, when you turn inscription on and you go to start a new game, there's actually no way to start a new game. There, the option to start mm. a new game is broken when you first play, um, which is strange. And you're like, oh, that's weird. And it's like, you can only continue. And you're like, okay, so you click the continue button. So in a way, you were kind of, I don't know about you, but I was sort of expecting something like this to come up. Maybe not this 
certainly not that thing exactly, but that we mm. were going to find out why um, why you could only continue um, rather than starting a new game. And that's because yeah. you, as it turns out, are Luke Carter, which is this person who is doing these um, card reviews, card game reviews. Yeah. He reports to be a like a pack opener kind of bloke on YouTube who's gotten his first hundred subscribers or whatever and yeah. um yeah has a few recordings of opening packs yeah. in those videos. Yeah, and, and in those videos he finds a bunch of old inscription cards. And that's what sets him on his journey to um find the actual inscription video game. Yes. Do you remember how he did that? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so as he opens these deck of cards that he found at some, um, uh, what's it called? Um, garage sale. Um, one of them is Mm -hmm. open. Uh, and so he's like angry because he thinks that the rare cards have been stolen or something. But when he opens it, he finds that somebody has written, um, coordinates on one of the cards, um, to a location kind of near his house. Yes. So he follows the coordinates, goes to that location and digs in the ground and finds a box with a floppy disk in it, which is inscription, the game. The game yes. that, you, that we, as the player, as Luke Carter, are playing. <laughs> yep. That, that meta-recursion element is just, it layers so much on top of itself, it's ridiculous. It does. Um, but on the subject, just while we're talking about it, and not to complicate things for the listener if they aren't aware of this stuff, there is... Something that began before this game was released, an ARG, as they call it. It's like a alternative reality game, I think they call it. Usually it's it's used as a campaign to uh, as a lead-in to the release of the game to try and bring people in and solving puzzles and trying to yeah. unfurl information about the game. Did you know that there was something like that before Inscription's release? I actually didn't know that until after I finished the game because yeah i mean okay. we'll talk it we'll talk about it a bit later but i found out after sure. i finished the game um about the yeah. arg yeah cool we will talk about it later then um but there is an element to it where they go so in depth with the arg portion of this that the location that luke carter goes to dig out inscription they also placed in the arg post release of the game an item in that exact location that people in the world went to to dig up stuff. And Daniel Mullins and uh, the actor who played Luke Carter were there and took like selfies and stuff and gave them some some merch or something. So that, that actual location was used to do promotion for the game as well. <laughs> yeah, it's Which freaking crazy. wild. Absolutely wild. Yeah. Um, but very cool. I love the dedication that people have. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so Luke has unfurled his inscription pack. He has found the GPS coordinates, dug up the floppy disk. Uh, I think he's inserted it into his computer at this point and discovered that uh, there's something a little bit weird about it. And I think he may even contact the game company. He does. In this first stage as well. Yeah, I Um, think so. Which is Game Game Funa is the name of the company that's discovered there. Yeah. Um, which has an actual website too, which is <laughs> really interesting. Really? Um, That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And you can look up um, employee reports. And I think that the way that I discovered this, because there's a game that I've played before called Assemblance, which had elements like this 
littered through it. It's crazy. Wow. In those videos, I was looking for a lot of things that I can use to either Google search or websites I can visit and email addresses I can use to try and, you know, coax out a bit more information because that's probably what is in there. Mm. And if you go to the Game Funa website based on some information from later on in the game, uh, there are specific website pages you can look at for email things. And it's where some of the narrative around that game company comes out. But I think it's more of an act three thing more than an act one or two thing. So we'll yeah. get to that in due course. But in any case, we've seen some <laughs> videos, you get to the end and then you can close out the looking at those videos and then the game changes again to become act two. which is a bit different than the first bit. Uh, it's 8-bit <laughs> yeah. style, kind of, if you played, yeah. I think, the old Link to the Past, the old Zelda, it's very much in that style, yes. um, the style of old Pokemon and, you know, those kind of 8-bit games. I, I yeah. really want to know, what was your feeling when you saw that there was more game after what you just did? What was your initial thought? I was I was super excited. Okay. Um, really, really excited. I was like, oh my God, I can't even believe that there's more to this. This is so cool. Um, but then when I started playing, I actually had such a mm. hard time um, wrapping my head around the new sort of play style, even though it is quite similar to the first act, once you kind yeah. of get used to it. The, the, part, the, the way that you collect cards um, there's sort of like four different decks. So it's almost like you've been playing with just like one kind of deck mm -hmm. up until this point. Um, but once you hit Act 2, it introduces like four kinds of decks to play with. There's like a magic deck. There's like a deck that deals with death and bones. There's the deck, the original deck, which is the wild animals and like the wilderness kind of that sort of blood-based deck. And then there's a computer technology yep. kind of deck. Um, and it's just so much, it's so much that it, it kind of blew me off the game for a while and I almost didn't continue, um, just because I just, no matter what I did, I just couldn't beat the first boss that yeah. I was given. And I was just like, I just don't know <laughs> what to do about it. <laughs> me too. I was exactly the same. Like I, I knew yeah. as soon as it got to a second stage, I was like, okay, mm. this is not what the game was i need to figure out exactly what this game is but you are right like it blasts open the game four different new ways and layers mm. on so many more mechanics to the game that you're not familiar with yes it's not not always super clear about what you're supposed to do as well or like zero direction how those new decks work there is none and especially for those the robot type and what ends up being the magic yes. type which is the the squares, the circles, and the triangles of varying colors. I know I myself had zero idea how to play those cards. I had no idea how they worked yeah. together. And the other problem, the other problem is no. <laughs> uh, that you're given booster packs for these cards based on actions you perform in even separate biomes in this map area. So it's an 8-bit area that you can walk yeah. around a bit. And yeah. the four different mechanics that you have access to, the four different sets of cards, relate to what ends up being described as the four scribes, with Leshy being one. Yeah. And I cannot recall the names of the others. I, yep, I 
my memory's gone. <laughs> Let me look them up. Because <laughs> I also can't remember them. <laughs> okay. Well, while you're doing that, um, those four scribes are, you, you can select one of them at the beginning of this second section. And it kind of purports itself to be a mechanic of choosing that might give you some sort of advantage at the beginning, but I think it just dictates the cards that you get first. So another question that I had for you was which scribe did you pick at the beginning of Act 2? So I ended up um, picking the beetle scribe, uh, his, his name I also can't remember and who I'm trying to look up, um, but uh, I picked her sort of um, her thing. Um, which was the dead. Hers was... Um, They've got a, a mechanic where you play a card, it attacks, and then it disintegrates immediately. Yes. Yes. So my I picked hers to replace her as the scribe of the death, I guess. Um, but I ended up playing a deck that was mixed between the animals, Leshy's yep. cards, and her cards, the death cards. So. I did a bit of a mix of those two. I realized pretty quickly that if you spread yourself too thin between the different deck um, dynamics, it becomes too difficult, yeah, to achieve anything. Um, it really feels like in order to play it best, you, it feels to me at least like you really had to pick a side, you had to pick yes. a lane, you know what I mean? And just like really dive down on that. So for, for me... I played that. Demo played all robots. For some reason, he just really like, or was it magic? I think he just like, he picked magic, I think. And then he just really drilled down on that. And that was his only deck that he used. He didn't use any of the other Which decks. Which is crazy to me. Which surprised me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, I don't even know how all of that worked. <laughs> like, it was so complicated. Did he do what the young people do and just look at it and go, yep, yeah, okay, I know how that works. Played a couple of cards and went. Okay. I don't know. Good. I'm going to keep doing that. <laughs> I think he, I, I think it equally troubled him as well because I remembered him being like, I'm just dying and dying and dying, man. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That's what you seem to do for like a really big part. Uh, for me, at least, yes. I actually died all the way up until I managed to create a deck that I could win with. And then from that point onwards, I barely lost again. It was almost like I, like I lost all the way up until. I started winning and then I won all the way to the end. It almost felt just between you and me and I guess the listener. Mm -hmm. Big secrets. Like, uh, just like a tiny bit unbalanced. You know what I mean? I was sort of like, it doesn't feel like you should have to suffer so much up front and then kind of rush through the second half so fast just to find a way to make the game work. <laughs> and it kind of, like I, the way I played was exactly this, the way that you played. Yeah. Which tells me that both that the scribe that you pick at the beginning, which I have discovered is uh, Grimora, is the <laughs> one that you selected. Yes. Leshy is the one that we started with in Act 1. Yes. We also have PO3. Yes. Which is the robot and Magnificus. Oh, Magnificus. Yes. Wow. Eventually, you get to him and he looks like a pine tree. Like yeah. Like a Christmas tree. Yeah. Which is unusual. Yeah. yeah Magnificus is his Magnificus. name. Magnificus. There you go. Uh, and respectively- uh, Grimora is the beetle card in Act One. Yes. Um, PO3 is the stoat. Yes. And Magnificus is the wolf. It's so funny. I think through the whole, through Act Two and even Act Three, I think I thought of the robot as the stoat. 
And I think I referred to it mm. as the stoat even long after it was the um, robot. And the same with the, uh, with the Magnificus as well. I don't think I actually ever got his name. So like you just saying his no. name just now, I think that's the first time I like feel like I've known it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think I've always just thought of him as the master or the magician or the wolf. Yeah. And that's, that's how I've referred to him up until this point. <laughs> well, it almost doesn't matter. Like, yeah. that's, that's one of the great things about this game. You can just brute force your way through everything and use game mechanics and that's it. Yeah. And you, the story is there for you as much as you want to pick it up. Yes. Like, it, it doesn't push that down your throat at all. Yes. But going back to the mechanics again, the fact that you picked Leshy as a base with a little sprinkle of Grimora yes. in there. Yeah. The sacrifice with a bit of the bones, two mechanics that can work very well together. I think the way that they've designed the game it kind of pushes you towards that a little bit. Yeah. Or at least someone who has strategy in mind will pick those yeah, initially. Yeah, exactly. Or at least, I mean, look, that's the way it worked for you and me. I can't for the life of me uh, figure out why my brother ended up with the magic set, but he that's all he yeah. used all the way through. So I suppose that, that suggests to me that it's also possible to use the other two decks and actually win with them. Maybe mm. some choices are just sort of, maybe some choices are easier than others. I, I mean, because I had played with the blood and the bones for all of Act 1, it kind of made sense to me that they would work together. And I still sort of figured it out by knocking them together bit by bit, um, which is why it took me so long to win anything. But Me too. <laughs> but regardless, I think that the suggestion that they would work together already existed, given Act 1 had worked. That was my reasoning too. Mm, mm. There you go. <laughs> now it should be said too that this section is quite large. Like there's a there's a biome for every one of our scribes. Mm. The robot and uh, PO3 and Magnificus are locked off by a bridge mm. until you defeat. I think it's either Leshy or Grimora, or perhaps you have to defeat both before the bridge gets repaired. I think in it's that just section. one because I believe I actually think I ended up beating Grimora last. Which is pretty I think I did too, actually. Wild. Yeah. But you do fight the scribes oh, in yeah. each of their respective areas and games. And they have weird mechanics as well. And the progression through to fight the final boss is a bit more, I would describe it as Pokemon-y. Yeah. Like there's, it's not Pokemon battles, but there's weird challenges that you have to beat in card games as well as environmentally. Yeah. A lot of puzzles. Yes. Lots of puzzles. Magnificus particularly was very puzzle driven. Yes. Like that was a tower that would have a level. I think it was three levels before you got to the top and yeah. got to have a chat to him. But um, they each kind of had a visual based puzzle based on that neon paint that we saw in act one with the eyeball in our face. Yes. And PO3 was a robot building factory that had uh, a series of robots in it doing different things. And then you had to drop off a robot on a conveyor belt somewhere and follow it all the way back to the start again and yes. do a bunch of weird stuff like that. But um, I think it was an entire game unto itself, Yes, that second act. Absolutely. But I don't think any person who played up to that point expected it to be like that. No, not at all. It's like if you had a job and they, <laughs> let's pick a job, you know, let's say you're working at McDonald's, yes. something that everybody's familiar with, I'm sure. They say, okay. We're going to teach you how to make the cheeseburger. Is what you do, you take the patty, you get the cheese, you got the two burger buns, stick it all together, put it on top, wrap it up. Perfect. Okay, away you go. And then 
you discover that there's Big Macs. There's quarter pounders, there's fillet of fishes, there's the McRib. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> all these different burgers that you can make that you have to infer how to make based on being told how to do the cheeseburger. Yeah. You know, you'd probably scroll up your apron, throw it on the floor and say, no, I'm done. <laughs> Which I, th- I think a lot of people did with Inscription. They found the point, they got to that point and they realized they had the best time in Act 1. Yeah. Act 2 was a bit harder, like the strategic and the ec- the card players who have played card games like this before would have persisted. And those with enough, you know, diligence and perseverance to shove themselves through it yeah. would have done it. Yeah. Kind of like what we did probably where you find a deck type that works for you and yeah. then you play it until you get through that stuff. And then everyone else kind of just fell off. fell off it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And I mean, I think for me at least, um, I'd be interested to know what kept you going. But for me, I think mm. there was... I definitely had questions that they had set up sort of along the way that I wanted answered. And they weren't, they were enough that I was like, I really want to know what happened with X person. Or, you know, like, I really want to find out what happened to Y, or I really want to know if there's more to Luke Carter's story. Or there was enough questions that were floating around that kind of made me go through it. But I know certainly that it was a near thing that Damo nearly fell off it as well. And I think Alfie sort of, she sort of lost a bit of interest around that point as well, just because there was, it was learning how to play the game again, almost. Um, And yeah, Yeah. it was just a bit steep, I think. Yeah, yeah. In terms of card games too, it's the difference between having fun with your cousin and playing in a tournament with a bunch of other people and looking over the wash of others doing way different things that you're not prepared for and don't know how to, to you know, play against and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, there's just a lot. When you play Act 1, I think you really get to a point where you, where so much of the enjoyment is actually the strategy. Uh, and there's, there's like different ways that you can play. You can play more defensively. You can play more aggressively. You can play more with boons than with like objects and other things that you pick up along the way. There's so many different ways to do it that it, the strategy in and of itself becomes a very satisfying part. It's actually one of the few games I've ever enjoyed watching other people play um, because I watched yes. um, my friend Alfie play it for hours uh, and I watched my brother play it for hours just because we all love to sit around and be like, how are we going to solve this particular problem? How are we going to solve the next problem? Like each round is just like a delicious little problem that you need to solve. Um, whereas once yeah. you hit that second part, all of that strategy and all of that kind of like that sort of mode, that feel to the game kind of goes out the window. And it's sort of like, it's no longer about strategy really anymore. It's sort of a bit more of a pure kind of hard game experience rather than having that fun yeah. element of like, you know, what, how am I going to solve this puzzle? It turns into how am I going to clobber this card so that I can, you know, continue on yeah <laughs> what kind of what kind of pen do i need to complete this crossword most effectively yeah exactly yeah it becomes less about the strategy and more about the yeah the function i guess which is a pity <laughs> but you know once you do get past the sort of kind of complexity and stuff and you make it into the robot world i feel like you really kind of recaptured some of that original strategy and that original kind of enjoyment again in that in that new world. <laughs> yeah. And Act 3, it, it does one of those mechanics, again, the same way Act 1 did, but 
as you say, it, you get to immerse yourself in the puzzle instead of having to build a table before you can complete a puzzle on it. Yeah, exactly. This feels very complicated. Yeah. But look, we won't dwell on Act 2 for too long then. Yeah. Because it is, yeah, like I think you asked me what, how I pushed through it and it was the, the thrill of discovery. Like yeah. I, was, I was keen to pick apart the little details behind the scenes and see exactly what was changing or what, what I could infer from what was going on. Yes. I think largely Act 2 doesn't contribute a whole lot. It no. does. Oh. It, it gives you the narrative within the game universe, I think. Like it sets up the scribes. Agree, know. agree. It answers a lot of the questions around who the scribes are, how they ended up trapped in Leshy's sort of world, you know, why yes. that's all happening, what their motivations are, what they want to achieve. So all of that is within that world, which is good. Um, and actually, before, yep. before we move on to talk about actually, I did want to ask you, my question mm. about the thing that I missed. Okay. We find out through the course of the game, before this point, I think, that um, there was an employee working at Game Funa named Casey. I was going to ask you this too. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and we find out that she, I can't remember if you know it at this point or if you learn it later on, but you find out that she uh, was probably murdered because she tried to, is, is that right? I mean. She got trapped in a fire, didn't she, at, at Game Funa? I'm trying to think where you discover that, because that is the case. Yes. Um, the first reference that I know of, of Casey, is that you get her as one of the death cards yes, in the game. Yes, you do. Yes. Actually, good point. Yeah, now I'm like, did I find that out after I finished the game? I think, I think it's quite late on. I think it's Act 3 that you discover more of this stuff, because within that third act, yeah. there's- data points yes. where you are given more information uh, about Luke yes. and about Game Funa. And yes. there's also the second phase of Luke Carter's recordings yes. as well there's a that few you get after you complete Act 2. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, all right. Yeah. You hear about Casey as the death cards and then you, in the world, if you go to the fishing area where you catch a fish so that you can get past the fishermen. When you do that, if you walk upwards from where you've caught the fish, there's another area in the woods. Um, it's kind of like a bit of a secret area. You really wouldn't know that it was there unless you found out. But um, up there is yep. supposed to be where you can meet the trapper, I think. Um, yes. But I never got to that stage. So I found that area. But when I found it, all it had was a picture of a girl that was glitching out, like a photograph of a girl that was glitching out. And I assumed, I think correctly, that it was Casey. But I never found the trapper and I never worked out what to do with that photograph before I moved on to the next section. So I did want to ask you if you ever figured that out. <laughs> I think I figured out what the function of that was mm. because in, in that act, there is... There are jumping rabbits yes. in certain sections of the map that you can click on and you get the pelt. You take that pelt to the trapper yes, and they'll give you a boost pack for it. Yes. I was just going to say, is it the trapper or was it the other one, the carver that you oh, find in the woods? The trapper is the one who dispenses the pelts. Yeah. The tanner, the I tanner. think, is the one who processes them. Yes. And gives you stuff. Okay. The trapper and the tanner. 
Actually, funny thing I just thought of, you probably noticed this with having a very detailed eye yourself, that the the mask of the trapper and the tanner in the the third boss in yeah. Act 1, it's just flipped upside down. Yeah, it's the same thing. I know. It's pretty cool, yeah. huh? I really yeah. enjoyed that. Um, it's the little things. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I think I was aware of that. Yeah. But at that point in the, dare I say, the story of the game at the time, it was difficult to decipher that because- you become aware of Casey yeah. alongside a bunch of other death card names that get thrown into the mix in Act 1, if yeah. you get that far. Uh, there's also video footage of Luke being accosted at his front door by a mysterious woman. Yes. This is after he attempted to contact Game Funa about having inscription. Yes. Uh, there was a video of a woman at his front door that he was videotaping, and she was like a you know smart, casual kind of detective looking thing with the big boss sunglasses and yeah uh, you know the functional ponytail and kind of like <laughs> hey you uh you, you've got inscription don't you yeah and he's like what i didn't i don't know what you're talking about yeah she didn't say her name or anything i think at that point in the game i presumed that that was casey actually because we didn't know as much as we had do you want to know something fun sure all right so in that moment when she says my name is the um, video glitches um, and if you pause it when the video glitches there is binary code on the screen um, and if yes. you put the binary code into a binary code translator it says her name um, and it's I can't remember what it is but it's like Patricia or something like that it's not Casey it's something else yeah. but but I literally found that out in the moment because we, me and Alfie were watching it and then we saw the thing glitch and I was like, I thought I saw something there and I paused it and we were able to like translate it from there. And there's quite a few circumstances of binary code coming up in Luke Carter's footage in a way yep. that you can sort of translate it and find out additional kind of details about sort of secret parts of the game. So um, at, yep. at that stage, um, I, I knew that it wasn't Casey. But yeah, yeah. But I think I think my point is that I I definitely didn't have enough to infer that that was Casey or not or who Casey was. Yeah, definitely not the game Funa Fire. No, um, no, no. I think that was Act Three. But that kind of detail, that's the stuff that I was looking for. Like there are videos. I think in that second phase too, because like even the details in the video footage itself can sometimes be an indicator. I know there's a flash of a couple of frames of a piece of paper. Yes. With a code, mycologist yeah. or something in yeah. there, which is, uh, it does give you a clue, Yes, but it's also a misdirect because there's a function in act one called the mycologist that takes duplicate cards and splices them together into a massive one. Yes. That code Sometimes. I found out about afterwards. I'm actually, yeah, once again, uh, I, um, I'll have to send you a video, but um, once we talk about the end of the game, we can sort of <laughs> talk about the sort of broader picture i guess with the all of the mysteries kind of pulled together but yeah um that was very cool all of the binary code was so cool yeah and all of that is is uh, a functional part of the arg as well yeah so the stuff that happened pre and post release and no one got the full picture until all of these youtube videos on the lucky carders youtube channel which actually exists and was releasing videos three months prior to the release of inscription it had stuff like that buried in it. Get out of town. Yeah. Man, I totally miss that. Um, oh, there's so many things that you miss as well. Oh. I'll be very curious to see what you even read about uh, post-finishing the game. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, that in that video footage, there were sometimes areas of act two that would be shown that would kind of, you know, point you to do something in there that maybe you wouldn't have thought of or yeah. uh, that might have changed a little bit. Yeah, that, those videos were really unusual. Yeah. This game, in terms of that content, the game th can be played without all that stuff. Yeah. Which is a really interesting part. But that particular section of the game is a community-driven, like, it, it literally takes a village. And oh, that village yeah. is the entire planet. You could not you could not solve it as a single person. You, It's the kind of thing that really requires a lot of people in a lot of different locations to sort of pull it yes. together, which is so fascinating. It is. But yeah. And there's a bugbear that I have oh. with the game Assemblance with regards to the approach to inscription. But I'll save that to the very end. We don't okay. want to interrupt the, the flow, the flow <laughs> of what right. we've got going on here. So going into Act 3, do we want to sort of talk about Act 3? Yes. So we've, we finished Act 2, we've gotten the second phase of recordings from Luke Carter, yes. which I think is varying degrees of his descent into lunacy and <laughs> not quite understanding what inscription is and really weird things happening to his computer, uh, recordings on his camera being glitching out in really weird ways like what you mentioned with the, the binary code and, and stuff like that. Yes. Like they're just really weird. It doesn't really stitch the story at all for you but it gets some of the, it really pushes you to the edge of wanting to know more. I yes. think it, it, it shows you that there's a lot more to be seen than what's happened so far and is probably the most rewarding part of Act 2. Yes. To be fair. Definitely, definitely. So, enter Act 3. Yes, Act 3. Uh, uh, I can't remember how it starts, actually. I think at the end of Act 2 is PO3 emerging as the dominant scribe Yes. You know, for whatever reason, he did some trickery and buffoonery um, while you were playing Act 2 to bring the stage of play into his world. Yes. Which is computers and robot driven. And if you played his Act 2 biome, which you would have had to. Or yes. Let's say if you were concentrating in his Act 2 biome, <laughs> then um, you would know, be familiar with the layout of his space. Yes. Which is set up very much like Leshy's cabin in... Act one. Yes. Except this time you're in a machinery kind of location. There's like a printer in the corner. Um, there's weird pipes and conveyor belts and computers and screens and stuff. Yeah. In that stand up environment. Yeah. Uh, but I think he actually has you chained down. He for does. A little bit at he the does, beginning. Yeah. And yeah. And yeah, it is sort of interesting that um, you move from like, and like at the first part of the game, Leshy is the one who sort of has the dominant control of the world and it's his world and then you enter a sort of neutral place where all of the scribes are relatively even um and then the stoat does then take over and you're pulled into his world hmm. yeah and he uses the different mechanics again mm. this time you are set up with a set of default cards but like leshy's world they've got a different mechanic they've got the the robot driven one which is about proximity and targeting of cards because you've got the sniper that can shoot any yeah. space. Uh, there's also a battery mechanic. Yes. Which um, you can place batteries on the board to power up certain cards that can be empowered by it. There's even a shield mechanic to it as well. Yes. Yes. And bonuses from other cards yeah. to you know, empower 
with those those traits if they if you have the ability to empower them with them. There's also a lot of things that you can do to your deck because unlike Act One, you're not doing runs. You're kind of it's a persistent world that you can move through, like moving a game piece through this virtual environment with yeah paths, kind of like a maze. It's sort of like a roguelite sort of situation. Yeah, exactly. Except your deck, you don't lose what you acquire with your deck. You're kind of you've got one deck of cards in it. Yeah. And you acquire cards and you build up or remove or change the statistics of those cards. Yeah. There's also the idea of the totem is persistent through this as well. Yes. Because with each individual section that you complete, you can give all of your cards a certain mechanic. Yeah. And that might be uh, gain a battery uh, increment, which is your, you know, sacrificial spending points yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. To play cards in this one. Um, or they might get flying. I can't remember if that yes. existed there. There is a flying um, aspect, definitely. Or at least yeah. some, some of the cards fly, at least. Um, but yeah. And the motif is very much computer-like, where all of your cards are kind of floppy disks. Yes, and- it is. It's also, like, much more weaponized as well. Like, where the first yep. sort of part of the game, where Act 1 feels very sort of strategic. And, I mean, you are... the 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 narrative is, I guess, that you're sacrificing animals and things like that to defeat other animals and then the person who you're fighting against. This, this third act feels very much, feels very like bullet and or projectile oriented, where it's sort of like I am shooting something to destroy it and I'm shooting like, you know, the thing that I'm fighting to break it, I guess. It just feels much more, um, yeah, I guess, militaristic. <laughs> If that makes sense, yeah. much more kind of, yeah, Definitely. bullet and shield rather than, you know, kind of mysticism and magic. And I think that lends itself to the narrative too. Yeah, definitely. Based on what PO3 is all about. And I, I also found it to be very satisfying. Like once again, much like Act 1, I, I found myself falling much more into that sort of, that feeling it, that sort of feeling of play again, which made it, it was so nice yeah. to return to that world. <laughs> After being in Act yeah. 2, you're like, oh, yes, I know where I am again. <laughs> Another element that might have motivated you, I'm not sure if you picked up on it necessarily. Well, you would have noticed it, but whether it motivated you or not might be a question. Leshy in Act 1 was very much a kind of supportive DM, for lack of a better term, because he would take you through the game and, you know, you get to the end and he'd drag you into the back and take a picture and you'd essentially die. You know, he'd concede matches, he'd... You know, bring you back to the board and, you know, do a bit more of a game. He'd say, hey, walk around the room as much as you like. That's perfectly fine. Whereas PO3 is, he's got an attitude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's like, his attitude is very- Hostile. Well- He's aloof. He's, yeah. he's very much, he makes fun of you. Yeah, he does. he's playing stuff. He's kind of like- He's sarcastic. That choice. Why would you do that? And bratty. I'll do it anyway, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that might have been a push for you too. Because yeah, I know it was for me, like, this guy, got to get this guy. He's annoying. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know if it was a, a motivator, but I, it, it was certainly nice to have a different flavor, I guess, of boss. Yeah. And, and once again, I think that mono a mono kind of feeling, that was very good to sort of return to as well. So, yeah. And some more interesting different mechanics as well, like with the countdown. 
Sometimes you end up at a place where you have to defuse a bomb by, you know, by attacking yes. a certain amount of times and every attack sort of like brings the bomb closer to being defused. Um, but yeah, some, they really, yeah. they never stop sort of like looking to create a different kind of gaming experience. So it never, it's never boring. It's like never a dull moment in the whole game. <laughs> yeah. Except maybe like at the beginning of Act 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, Act 1 and Act 3, I think, are really built that way for it to never be a dull moment, but also not rely on you to motivate yourself 100% to get through it. Yes. Because they are, they are very well structured. Yes. Whereas Act 2 maybe isn't structured It's more self-directed, well. yeah. So you've yeah. kind of got to do it yourself rather than have somebody be like, here you go, <laughs> here's the next mm. thing. <laughs> Now, I'm curious how much playing of Act 2 impacted your play in Act 3, because just like Leshy's Cabin, there's a lot of stuff to unpack in the space around you. Uh, a lot of things you do uh, on the table, mm. as it were, that impact what happens outside the game. You even have the goo, the, yes. the green goo, looking for hint of the master, yes. who sits in a pipe and kind of gives you little clues and stuff. How much of that environment did you tackle? I definitely explored, I explored everything there was available to explore in that area, but I definitely think I went to it in a much less, shall we say, enthusiastic way than I did in Leshy's Cabin. Yeah. Because Leshy's Cabin sort of made a lot of sense. There was a lot of sort of visual aspects to it, whereas the, um, what, what's the robot's name again? PO3. PO3's yep. sort of. You can call in the stoat if you want. Yeah. <laughs> the Stoats kind of area was very, um, they had like, you know, all of the puzzles on screens that you had to solve. And if you solved it, like new areas would open up or you would be given objects or you would be allowed to sort of go certain places. But um, yeah, it sort of felt a bit less traditional puzzly and much more technological puzzly, which once again is makes sense thematically. Um, but yeah, mm. I guess it wasn't as interesting to me as Leshy's Cabin was. It lacked that spooky yeah. aspect that I really enjoyed. Um, what about you? Did yeah. you explore it a lot? I tried. I definitely did a lot of the things that were very easy to pick up, but I think like you, I had a bit of discovery fatigue when yeah. I got that far. I also have a very bad habit of pacing myself to a point in a game. And when I realize, okay, I'm going to finish this game and I'm having a great time, I just consume the rest of it way too quickly. <laughs> so that might have um, put me off doing everything that was in there. Yes, yes. I definitely didn't explore all of it. And I know that I missed stuff in the game section as well. Yeah. Which is where a lot of these story elements that I think you've talked about already come out. Because yeah. as you explore the, that environment, there are also rabbits that you find that you take to a tanner bloke. And I think in that game element... He gives you coins, which I think you accrue throughout the game to spend and buy booster packs and cards and and things like that. I think so, but in trying to remember, I don't, I don't. The most significant thing I remember discovering as being important in that area was actually yep. the the goose sort of whole deal. So I think in that location, if you solve the little um, magicians kind of totem, which is in there as well, I think. You can go into yes. the goo's mind space and kind of learn some things about the relationship, really? I think. Yeah, between the goo and the master, I think. No way. If I remember correctly, I think that's what 
you can get in that area. So you did that? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I had no idea that was a thing. Yeah. It's, once again, it's kind of difficult to see, difficult to solve, but that's, I think, yeah, the only thing that really sticks out in my mind as being especially interesting or important from that area. Um, but yeah. Well, we are starting to get towards the end of the game. Yes. And the bits that you discover in this bit, they do unpack a lot of the story, but it's super easy to miss. And yes. I know I missed a lot. Um, so as it turns out, the the rabbits that you find in that act three and you give them to the tanner, there are five, five pelts essentially that you need to pick up. Yes. And if you give all five to the tanner, I'm, I'm assuming I'm using the right name there. Could yeah. be wrong. But anyway, if you give all five pelts, when you finish that section of the game, it gives you access to a bunch more information because there are references to things like the old data. Yes. And there are five cards that you get before you experience the old data that outlines a lot of the story that you've probably discovered post-game and maybe inferred a little bit from discovering little bits. Because there are data points that you pick up on that map in Act 3 as well that give you little bits of story, like Luke Carter having a sister yes. who died in 2009, I think, like six months before he undertook his card pack opening channel. Yeah. As a way to get closer to her. I didn't know this. Yeah, yeah. And that's where you see information about the fire at Game Funa uh, Studios. I do whatever. remember that. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, I should say at this point too, audience, anyone listening to this podcast, if we are at any point wrong, feel free to get angry and send me <laughs> an email about it. <laughs> because, look, we may very well be, as we've talked about, uh, there's so much of this game that, that we've both missed. So- yeah, deaddroppod at gmail.com. <laughs> I feel like we've been, or at least when I played it as well, as you were saying, it even if you miss some things or you don't do some things, it still feels like such a full experience that it's sort of difficult to know when you have missed something. Yes. And the only thing that told me that there was more to find is that feeling that I have at the end of games like this where I go, there's something I missed. Yeah. There's no nothing that, that tells me that explicitly. Yeah. Nothing I can point at, but I'm like, I haven't got everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But anyway, we, we are talking about the end game for Act 3 already. Before we talk about that and unfold the narrative bits, what did you think of the bosses? In Act 3? Do you remember any of them? Because uh... I find it hard to remember too. I so the act three bosses, if I remember correctly, once again, not hundred percent sure. Um, I think mm -hmm. that they were transmuted sort of versions of the original four bosses. So I think that it was Leshy was a photograph machine of some kind. So it just it took away everything from the scribes that sort of made them who they were and just kind of broke them down to their most mechanical self, I guess. Um, yeah, that's a really great way to describe it, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, that and they're sort of very void of their original um, personalities and their original sort of vibe and feelings and things. So yeah, I think mm. those are the ones that you kind of defeat um, as you go around that act. What about the mechanics of those bosses? Do you remember them at all? I, I really enjoyed Leshy's. Um, he had a cool mechanic where if you were playing, you could take a picture of your board. At a, you took pictures of He took pictures of your board at certain points. Um, and you had the opportunity to go back to those boards that point in time if you knew that you were going to die. 
So if you made some mistakes, you could go back and return to like an earlier sort of part of the play. Did you not experience Did he tell that? you that? I, I don't think I knew that. <laughs> oh my God. I was like taking pictures. I was like, okay, cool. That'll reveal itself to be something to me at some point. Yeah, that's, that, was the, that was the mechanic of his boss battle was that you could return to the last photograph you took or you could take another photograph. Um, so if you knew that you were going to lose, you could go back. It was a very, very kind mechanic because once you sort of knew that that's what it did, it was sort of very difficult to lose after that point because you were like, well, if I know I'm going to lose, I'll just mm. go back to the earlier the earlier photograph. Maybe I just completely missed the bit of the game that tells you that there and was, it was like on autopilot. Once again, there's a lot of points in this game where you just have to kind of nut it out, where you, where you, I feel like a lot of the game is like, what is it when you learn something by failing again and again? Trial by error. Trial by error? It's, yeah. 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 So basically, trial and error. Yeah. Trial and error. <laughs> it was just basically sort of being like, okay, if I take a picture, what happens? Okay, this happens. All right. If I press this other button, what happens? Oh, I went back. Okay. So can I do that again? Like just sort of like testing it again and again until you sort of figure out what it means. And that's, that's how I got yeah. through like most of Act 1 as well, where I was like, huh. It got a dagger. I don't know what this does. I guess I'll hang on to it for a while. And then I was about to lose a battle yeah. sometime. And I was like, well, I'm about to lose anyway. I might as well just stab, find out what this is for. Because at that point, you don't even know what it's for. And then that's how yeah. I pulled my eye out. And then I won that round because I was so close to the end. And then I got the eye immediately in that moment because... Yeah, it was just sort of happenstance and luck. But nothing told me what to do with that. In fact, Damo, my brother, he ended yeah. up asking me. He was like, what is it for? Because he didn't want to use it without knowing. Whereas I was like, I'm just going to use it. I'm going to die anyway. I'm going <laughs> to go back to the beginning of the round. Go. I'm just going to test it. <laughs> That's the funny thing that, that when you think about it and look back at your experience that you don't remember sometimes. Mm. That mm. you it literally doesn't tell you. Yeah. Like even the It doesn't. There's a lot of things it doesn't tell you. Yeah. You just have really to sort weird. of do it the first time and see what it does. Mm. Which I really, yeah. really enjoy. I feel like in some games that'd be a real pain in the ass, but I think because the play is so narrow, the play is so directed. Even yep. if you do something that you don't know what it's gonna do, it's not really gonna break everything. It's just gonna break that particular battle which isn't so bad. Yeah. Um, anyway. Which, which may be the problem with Act 2, that failure there requires a lot more for you to reset and get back to the point where you understand what you did wrong and have the capacity to fix it. Exactly. Whereas Act 1 and 3 give you a little bit more. Yeah, they're very forgiving room. with experimentation, I think. Um, but yeah. yeah, I don't actually remember what the other bosses, what Amazing. their powers were. Perfect. Okay, so there was one... <laughs> I, I can't, <laughs> sorry, I was geared up for this. It just so happened that you mentioned the one that I completely forgot and uh, forgot the ones that I was going to say. Um, so one of them gave you, it was like a, like a mimic type thing where you mm. could pick a, it had two phases. You could pick one type of power, like whenever you play a card, um, he plays a shield card or whenever you lose a life, you can gain a card or something mm. like that. Mm. Then you can change it up again to be something different, but with three three layers of that statement, I uh, guess, for okay. lack of a better term. Yeah, it's like a, creating a, an if statement about stuff, which is ties into the whole programming theme as well, mm. where, you know, if this happens, then do this unless, this. and I think that was the third component as well, else. Right. So if then, 
else do this. Yeah. Um, that was one of them. Yes. The second one was uh, where it asked to be connected to your computer. Yes. So, oh, that was so terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm so curious about to see with the console releases of this game, because I don't know how that mechanic is going to work. Neither do I. Computer. I guess it will just, yeah, I guess it will just access your PlayStation's data, probably. But it might be very easy to do. But in any case, the computer that you go up against asks for permission to access your files on your computer, and you can say no and not fight and back out and never beat the boss, or you can say yes and grant access to your computer. And then uh, a mechanic of that fight is for you to weigh down the scales to win, which is the same as Act 1 as well, mm. and Act 2, as as matter of fact. I don't think we ever said that. Yeah. And the, the size of the file you pick from your computer yeah. will create a relative-sized cube to weigh yeah. down those scales. Yeah. So what it does when you do that mechanic is it asks you to browse your file system on your computer, which is literally all the files on your computer. Yeah. And you will be going into... Well, I don't think it actually says what you should pick. It says pick an appropriate file. Yeah. And it doesn't say it has to be big in size or be a text or a video document or a text document or a video or a, yeah. a sound file or anything. It just says pick a file. Yeah. So I, of course, uh, having done video editing for my job, yeah. I went, okay, I know where there's a four gigabyte video sitting around somewhere. I'm going to pick that one. And the cube was massive. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, my God. I can tell you the reason why I wasn't concerned about that. Oh, yeah. Is because I've played another of Daniel Mullen's games. Yes. Called P Pony Island. Yes. I've heard of Pony Island. There's a mechanic in that game where you get to one of the devils. I think he, he asks you a bunch of questions and there's some meta mechanic to it where you get messages because it's based on a uh, an arcade which is you're, you're digging into the computer code to release demons to the world because they've been trapped inside or something something like that yeah and what that game would do mm. because it was from steam is it would start messaging you with the old steam ui message in the game mm but it would look through your friends list and pick a random one and message you as that friend within the game. Oh my God, that is so freaking weird. Oh my God, that yes. would be so stressful, but also so fun. Like what a, what a fun mechanic. <laughs> and that even that was unpacked immediately for me because it was the Steam account of someone that I used to work with about six years prior, yeah. who I know only created the account so we could set up some games for the school I'd been working for. For, for work stuff. I know she doesn't play games. So I was like, why is this person messaging me? <laughs> and immediately I thought, okay, I need to check if this person's account has been hacked by someone else ah. uh, in Steam. But then I read the messages and I thought, okay, this is, this is feeling like bot behavior. Yeah. Maybe it's not a bot. Maybe it's pretending. And then I checked the, the Steam messaging uh, component of Steam and there was nothing in there. So yeah. Yeah. This is, this is a, a key component of Daniel Mullen's games, not just the meta narrative and bringing you out of the game to continue playing in the game, but also the idea of manipulating the data mm. that's available to the game that he can use to set you ill at ease. Yeah. With what he's he's made for you to play. Yeah. It's 
just that was wildly clever, wildly clever. Typical. And yeah. that uh, a part of that was sort of also folded into inscription as well. When you, I can't remember if it's that specific boss, but you end up no, it's the playing, last one. yeah, playing against cards with the names oh. of people who are your friends on Steam, and they have, yes. they even have the pictures that's the profile images of the people on Steam as the profile pictures, which is so unnerving yep. because you're like, oh my god! Like for me, it was the same thing. I had three friends at work who I used to play. Age of Empires with, um, mm -hmm. and they were the ones who like popped up in the game, and I was like, "What the hell? Like, what are my buddies doing here?" And then you're like, "Oh, it's just him using the data," which is yeah, just genius. So here's the other thing that would blow your mind if you're not aware of it, but mm. I think it, it happens in that last fight. So you're fighting Po3 to yeah. as the final boss, just like you do Leshy, and whenever there is a moment where it seems to be stopping to think for a bit. And it feels like that's pretending because it's pulling friends, it's pulling dogs and pictures of cats out of the internet and stuff. Yeah. Really weird stuff. There is a component in there that will deliver cards to you that have been made by other players because there is a way to customize your own cards in yeah. this section. It will deliver cards to you that have been played by other players at the very same time that you're completing that same section of the game. Yes. So kind of like Journey. Yes. Where you can connect with other people. This will literally directly connect with other people playing Inscription and playing this part of the game at the same time as you. Yes. Which I don't know how anyone figured that out or just saw that it was built in the game somehow. But yeah, yeah. There, is, there is ways for you to connect with other people playing the game at the same time through that mechanic. Freaking which is, wild. Freaking wild. Yeah. Um, Danny Mullins, he's crazy dude. So cool. And once again, so cool that he uses that to kind of like to a specific effect, basically. But I don't think there's much more, like there's plenty that I missed in Act 3 mm. in that environment that I just didn't unpack. And a lot of it lends itself to the story, which we can get to when we wrap up the final portions of the game. Yes. Um, was there anything else you, you felt needed to be mentioned before we moved on um, to the epilogue, as it were? Not really. I guess, I think, I'm not sure if you were able to discover this. I feel like you must have. You had to have been in order to get yeah. to the end of the game. In the robots in um, the Stoats area outside the game, so not within the, the card game itself, but outside in the factory, um, mm -hmm. you can unlock a bunch of things that allows you to ride an elevator. Um, and when you ride the elevator, you end up seeing the other scribes in person, much like... Um, you saw Leshy in person um, when you defeated him. And they basically say to you, the, the robot's going out of control. Um, we need to put a stop to this. You just keep doing what you're doing uh, and we'll kind of like take care of the rest. That's the sort of vibe that they give you. And then you wake yep. up and you're back in the factory like you had never left. So I think that kind of sets up what's coming when you sort of take on the stoat as the final bad guy. Yes. I do remember that now. At the yeah. time you were saying it, I was like, oh my God, I <laughs> can't believe it. And then you described more of it. And I was like, yes, that's that's how it progressed. Yeah. Awesome. From what I can remember you saying that now. But yeah, that that is the overall overarching thing that we're experiencing in, in Act 3. That yes. PO3, the stoat, is trying to manipulate your game system, your 
console, potentially, or your computer in order to perform the great ascending. Yes. Which is something that gets mentioned quite a lot. And as we discover, the great ascending is him uh, extricating himself from the inscription game and into the internet. Yes. Yes. So his devious plan was through these bosses, he was going to get access to your system and uh, manipulate the files on your computer and, you know, create a connection to the internet that you said yes to and you confirmed all these things, you know, you, you didn't deny him access to these and that he was going to use them to ascend mm. and, and infect the world. Yeah. But the other three scribes are like, no, that's not on. We don't want him doing that. Yeah. We understand how dangerous this is or we are. And I'm pretty sure that's where they mentioned the old data yes. for the first time as well. Yeah. Um, that it's a very dangerous thing. It can't get out. Yeah. So yeah. Do, do what you need to to defeat, defeat the stoat and, you know, ensure that that doesn't happen. Yeah. That's what happens. I think you defeat PO3 yeah. and then a bunch of recodifying things start happening. And that's something that I meant to mention to you earlier, actually. Uh, a component of this for anyone astute enough to find it was that in between the acts, there is a bunch of lines of code running on the screen. Mm. Apparently, you can, I think it's control C or press C while that code is executing, and it will copy it to your clipboard and you can paste it uh, outside the game into a notepad file or, you know, wherever you want to. And it shows the code that's there. Mm. But there are files in the game install inside your PC, if you go hunting through it through C drive, program files, 86, dive into in the inscription files. And there are files you can manipulate by manipulating that code that you copied from the transition to unveil other aspects and functions within the game itself. Yes. This is, I completely yeah. missed this. So I, I caught, I, I caught I the no binary idea. in the videos, but all of this other stuff, I didn't find out about till afterwards. Yes, me too. Yeah. Um, but this is a callback to an episode that I guested on a little while ago with the Waffling Tailors. Yeah. Where I talked about inscription a great deal, as well as assemblance. Yeah. Apparently, Doki Doki Literature Club also has a mechanic like this in it. Really? Where, <laughs> as a visual novel, you'd think it's like, oh, anime, otaku, ladies in yeah. a book club with yeah. a dude. But you can manipulate the files stored in the computer and- the game knows that you're doing this and it starts to scrub out the faces and personalities of other people in the club uh. and other aspects of the game understand and narratively know what you're doing to make this happen. Oh my God. And yeah, it kind of evolves from there. That's so, it's, so cool. Yeah. It's like next level thinking. Um, yeah. Definitely listen to that episode. The Waffling Tailors. Very funny guys from England. Awesome. But yeah, so- So you defeat PO3, yeah. bunch of code. Refresh my memory. Do we get any Luke Carter videos at this point, or are I, we taken through the remainder of the game first? I don't remember. Because they're I kind of treated remember. separately. Yeah, I think I'm trying to remember if you. Let's just presume that um, that it's after. you know PO3's been infected with the other scribes. In and fact, like, no. Okay, yes, it is. We're going to sort him out for sure. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's after Luke's videos. Yes, I believe. Yeah, because it ends okay, with cool <clears throat> his end. Um, yeah. So you defeat the stoat and then mm -hmm. the stoat says, I don't care. I'm going to upload myself onto the internet anyway. I've got everything I need to do that. And it starts to do it. And then Leshy very viciously <laughs> breaks his neck. 
and um, yeah. and like pulls his head off, and then the three scribes are standing behind him, and it's basically like we finally did it. We we defeated him, but it's not enough that we have defeated him here. We need to destroy all of inscription in order to make sure that it never sees the light of day. Basically, um, the scribe yeah. the scribes say this. And then they sort of start deleting everything. And you get a bar that shows you the progress of the deletion yeah. as well. Yes. That sits as an overlay, but you kind of, you, you get to play through all the different sections of game, some of which wasn't actually, isn't part of the game, but you get to experience some of it. So I think the first one is that you're back in Leshy's cabin. Cap, cabin, sorry. No, really? Or am I wrong? Is it Grimora no. first? It was Grimora. For me, it was... Grimora? I wasn't too sure, but I, I'm pretty sure it is actually Grimora. Yes. You're in a 3D kind of chess-based mechanic yes. in a graveyard environment where you fight skeletons. and. It was so cool. You had um, your cards were little um, gravestones, um, which was mm. very cool. Yeah, and your the board game was a chess board, as he said, and you had to move around it in a way to get to the people that you wanted to fight. And um, yeah, I was <laughs> playing it and also playing the wizards section. Um, I felt really disappointed that we didn't get the opportunity to like play those sections play more thoroughly. It, I almost feel like there'd been like four acts with like each act sort of being like that, you know, Leshy's act mm. being like it was, the Stoats act being like it was. And then the Beatles act being like this cool chess graveyard sort of situation. And then uh, the yeah. wizard who you sort of figure out is, um, has this Yu-Gi-Oh style thing, which is so cool. <laughs> it was really awesome. Like uh, literally it was a dual deck. Literally. On the sleeve of yourself that you yeah. play cards on Yeah, with, um, you know, two rows. Oh no, it was just a single row of cards. Yes. Yeah, if you ever watched the Yu-Gi-Oh cartoon back in the day. Yes. It was like, I play my blue eyes white dragon, Seto Kaiba. The millennium <laughs> item will save me. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Exactly, exactly. But as you progress through that, you know, hidden section of the game, uh, it starts deleting more and more. So it starts to replace assets with really weird stuff. So yeah. it looks not as good as That's it did. glitching <laughs> out and, and you start losing things and things don't work as well. I've got to say, I don't yeah. know if this happened to you, but at least in Leshy's section, and I, I can't remember if he's the last section or the wizard is the last section. I feel like the wizard might be the last section. But when I was playing mm. Leshy, I actually got like a little emotional about it because it had been like yeah. such a journey to get there and you were playing it and you're like, oh, I remember this. Like, I remember the way it was in Act 1. And you, you really genuinely feel like you're like playing with an old friend. And he's, and you get to the point where things just keep disappearing until all it is is you playing against Leshy with cards. And there's no other, there's no other rules. There's no point system. There's literally nothing yep. except you and Leshy and sort of beating cards like without, without anything else. And it's, there's something sort of weirdly peaceful and sad and like beautiful about that moment. So nice. You're like, oh my. Like he's, he's a villain. He's a villain for so long. And then. Yeah. We get to the end and he's like, okay, we're going to have one last fight. The scales disappear and he's like, oh, oh, we can't track it anymore. Oh, well, let's just keep playing. 
Yeah. He's nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, it it's kind of sad because you know he's being he's going to be deleted. So effectively, he's going mm-hmm. to die essentially. And you're playing this like yeah. weird game, the last game that he'll ever play. And it yeah, there's something kind of weirdly nuanced and beautiful about that and I was just like, oh, I was like all overtaken. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And that could be why uh, earlier when I mentioned that, that the the time with Leshy is a bit nicer yes. than the time with PO3, yes. that may be me reflecting on that last moment, those last moments with him and being like, oh, he just wanted to play cards. Yeah. What a nice guy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But when you go through it the first time, I mean- yeah, I, I honestly think you're supposed to experience your feelings towards him in those two different ways because the first yeah. time when you play, he's definitely killing you at the end of every round, basically. Yeah. Like when you finish his section as a boss, you end up in a room with the ability to begin a new game floating before you. But if you look to the right or left of that hard that's floating there, you see a big pile of bodies, like human bodies, um, where this is obviously- This is obviously, a bit that we forgot to mention. Yeah, this has obviously been like uh, all the versions of you that he's killed in order for you to get to this point. So it's yeah. really kind of, it's very creepy and morbid and like scary in that moment. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but yeah, when you get to the end, it's kind of, yeah, that very different, the very different vibe to sort of to leave you with with him. But it's yeah. once again, it's pretty amazing that they were able to achieve that level of, I guess, emotional complexity given the kind of game it is. You know, you would normally think that you would need a game that would be pretty narratively heavy in order to have that kind of emotional response to a character that you don't really know that well. But it was, yeah, but they still managed to pull it off. Like, it's just very cool, very clever. <laughs> And mm. the, the whole characterization of everything kind of just kind of fitting into the, the gameplay and the story without much warning, but also without much fanfare. Yeah. It just kind of, you know, the three scribes are suddenly there and you're like, oh, I know these people, even though I've never actually, you know, seen them or played against them or you yeah. know, done the game interaction. Unless she's the only one where you really do that besides PO3, who yeah. is ultimately the villain and, and thus the emotional response towards the end. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, I think it's a really shining example of um, showing, not telling, working really, really well in the game space, which is pretty rare, um, especially these days, I think. Yeah. Scary for game devs, I think. Like, yeah. The, the discussion at the moment around Ubisoft a lot mm. is how they're all, and this may be a subject of the time of this recording, because you know Ubisoft may do a backflip and suddenly become the fun-loving AAA studio that you want them to be but um a lot of their marketing and game development has been driven by money yeah so you've got your assassin's creeds that used to be very much a oh there's gods that we need to investigate that are interplanetary and this is outside of the game space and then in the game desmond playing his ancestors in different time periods it was a very simple intriguing story that had not much around it Mm. cut Cut to 10 or 12 years later, you have a sprawling map of Greece, map markers all over the place, and explicit storytelling and, uh, you know, task management mm. where there is no intrigue left for the player. 
Yeah. And it's only those who love clearing maps that end up enjoying it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It becomes very um, sort of monotonous and very kind of um, going through the motions, basically. It feels like they're at a stage now where they're going through the motions. And I mean, I know we're not, Ubisoft isn't the sort of subject of this particular um, podcast, but me personally, I just wish that they would like sort of ditch the sci-fi portion and just do history instead because it really feels like there's a that yeah that i'm like i just don't think that the sci-fi portion is actually giving anything to the story anymore i think it's a detriment to the story at this stage and the history parts are so interesting (laughs) yeah exactly and often more thorough yeah i know syndicate had almost none yeah I, i think there was very little in that game and um austin wintry who i've also listened to a few podcasts on has also mentioned that there was no music developed for the bits outside of the, the animus in, mm. in Syndicate. All the music was created in game, so they don't even focus on that outside bit anymore. Yeah. It just kind of has to exist, and the people who complain about it, the stuff not being there for it, or the fact that Desmond, oh, this is a spoiler cast, Desmond died about yeah. six games ago. You yeah. know? <laughs> How do you bring that back for the people they want to sell the game to who want to see more of that? Yeah. Like it's it's a weird one. But as you said, this isn't a Ubisoft discussion. Maybe that can be <laughs> another, <laughs> another <one>. time. <laughs> another one. Now, we are at the stage of things at the end of the game. Mm. We've gone through each of the three scribes' last vestiges of gameplay in their their different areas mm. with their different mechanics in their 3D environments. You get to the last bit, and this is where my memory doesn't serve me well, which it doesn't serve me well often. I believe the last thing that you see when all the code is deleted, except, of course, the old data, which Mm. cannot be deleted for whatever reason, there's a couple of lines of a computer booting up and then a transfer complete and then an ASCII image of the stoat winking or something like that. Do you remember that? Uh, I I think I remember something before that. So I I think that you... After the wizard fades away, I think you end up as a little character in a white space. And then you're wandering around the white space for a little while. And that's when you come across the old data. And then I can't remember if it's somebody who asks you or somebody tells you that you have to delete the old data. Or or I think somebody, yeah, says that you have to interact with it or something. And when you double Mm -hmm. click and open it, that's when a bunch of... Um, things sort of flash up in front of your eyes that reveal like a bunch of things about the old data and what it was about and all of that kind of thing. And then I think you end up with the final Luke Carter video. Which was? Which was, uh, he. I think he saw the same thing. I think he was looking through the old data. He'd be like, I beat inscription. I found this old data. He was looking through it. And then there was a knock on the door. Oh, I feel like I'm remembering something else as well. But he goes to check on it. It's the woman from before. Um, he um, is very flippantly like, well, I guess, you know, I'll, I better get rid of her again. Um, and he goes to open the door <laughs> and she shoots him. <laughs> and poor, yeah. poor sweet Luke Carter, my poor sweet boy, uh, <laughs> ends up getting shot and bleeding out on the floor <laughs> in front of the camera. Yeah. 
um, and the woman from before steps over him, um, we assume to go and get inscription, go and get the data, which feels very, I wouldn't say it's unsatisfying. I mean, I was very sad that Luke died. I didn't want him to die and I was a little pissed that he died, but I sort of, it did feel a little bit like, I think I even checked if it was a fail state. I think I saw it and I was like, oh, well, that's, did I do it wrong? Did I miss something? Is this not the best ending that you can get? Because um, because it's it seems like Game Funa won. Yeah, exactly. Which is yeah. not what I expected. But yeah. Um, how did you how did you experience it? What did, what did you think about it? Well, as you were describing it, I got those tingles that I sometimes get when I experience something really important that means a lot to me when I play a game. Yeah. Um, PT is one of those games. Yeah. That gives me the tingles. Yeah. Um, Slender Man, the five pages also. Yes, yes, yes. Um, oh, I can't believe you played that one. You're so brave. <laughs> I know it's like a really <laughs> basic game, but I've seen people play it. It spooked me out oh, so much. Look, if we're talking about recommendations, that is a game you can play now. It's so That will give you the very same feeling. There is no way to desensitize yourself no. to that. It doesn't matter how old it looks. It creeps you out yeah. regardless. Which is to say, you're expecting the same from Slender Man The Arrival, mm. the much anticipated follow up to Slender Man The Five Pages. You will not get that. No, no, no. And in fact, if you seek to play it like The Five Pages, you play it like I do and get stuck for an hour in the tutorial. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, you do it for real. <laughs> <laughs> and then you finally exit that and you're like, oh, I'm not looking for pages. I need to get caught by the Slender Man. Okay, now yes, I get it. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, so weird. Anyway, um, <laughs> tinglies. So yes, I, I, I didn't think that there was an alternate ending, ah. but as you say, I believed there was more. Yes, to it, yes. Which there was. Yeah. Uh, at the time that I played, not all of it had been deciphered, but again, there was a bunch of YouTube videos that were uploaded to Luke Carter's account, not as Luke. Because obviously he's dead. Yeah. Post-game release, I think they couldn't release videos with his face on it anymore for that reason. It was a hacker. And that hacker was Game Funa. Oh. That's where there were videos the of the, the website. Is it the Ponytail Girl? Or no? It's impossible to say. Uh, well, I mean, obviously it infers that Ponytail Girl works for Game Funa mm. and shot Luke Carter to retrieve the inscription disc with the old data. Yes. To ensure that they did it. Yes. Now, I presumed, like I, I saw, as I described earlier, not in the right order, of course, but Winking Stoat. Yes. I was like, okay, there's a bit there. Yes. But I believe at that point, you are to infer that the game that you are currently playing is PO3 having been successful in extracting the game and the old data into the internet. Yes. And that's precisely why we're playing the game now. Yes, I think that that is the like the meta on meta on meta. <laughs> I think yes. that's the three levels deep of Inception that <laughs> that is yeah 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 is what they're in what they're hinting at, I guess. And that kind of inference probably told me that no, there isn't an alternate ending because the only way we could be playing this game is if Luke Carter was shot and PO3 was successful in uploading right. the game to the internet. Right. Right. Okay. Yes. So. Right. Most likely. When I finished the game, so when I was like, oh, I don't think this is the right ending, there's got to be a better ending. I remember, I think one of my primary sort of questions aside from that was what was more information about Casey, I think. Because 
uh, we didn't talk about this before, but at one point, Luke Carter reaches out to Casey's mom, not knowing that it's Casey's yes. mom. Uh, and she tells Luke that Casey died in a fire and um, everything sort of points to Game Funa maybe sort of being responsible. There was a lot of information that I felt was missing about what happened to Casey and what her deal was, what her story was. So because of that, that is why I looked on the internet and I found a video that was, I think it was called Best Ending or Real Ending or Proper Ending or I don't know, something like that. Or, the appropriate YouTube clickbait for yeah, exactly. people hunting videos. Exactly. <laughs> uh, watched it. Yep. It was the same as what I had. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and then I was like, okay, well, then game explained or whatever. And one of the top ones on there, that broke down the entire ARG sort of experience um, and what what all of the codes were, where all of the codes were hidden in the game where you manipulated the files, what story all of those files told about the Carnoffel code, about, um, you know, the old data, about the background of inscription and what it was and how it came to be. Um, so all of that information I had completely, obviously not even remotely gotten close to finding in the game. All I was looking for was like Casey's story, I guess. But yes, much like you, I was amazed to discover how much more there was to the game than, than is sort of like on the surface when you play it. But I I was still very detail-oriented. Yes. I, I did pick up little bits of the things. Yes. And But they didn't make much sense. No. Like the, the mycologist mentioning thing. Yeah. I did my, my assemblance work and I- had a search online to see if there was a Reddit username or an Imgur account or something that had some extra information that I could bring back to. Uh, it actually turned out to be referencing someone who was, suffice to say, don't look it up. No, 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 there, no. There's no, a bloke no. who had some very suspect material on <laughs> on that account for mycologist that, like, stuff about uh, phalluses that we dare not go into lest I have to give this podcast an explicit rating that's so, so weird don't do that so like in yeah, the, it's really weird in the video that i looked at it outlined a few different um codes that come up in the game and the mycologist code was one of them that are awful was another and kind of was another and all of them were when used together were able to break a cipher of a piece of code that ended up being a conversation uh, like a a snippet of chat dialogue um, between yeah. a few different people, including Casey, some of the people who purportedly got their hands on inscription to begin with. So, yeah, it just goes so deep. <laughs> and of course, summarizing it in as short a time as possible, that to my knowledge, you may want to correct some of this if I didn't dive deep enough on the internet. Mm. The Canoffel code is a code used in cards that Hitler had in his pocket. It was a cipher to unwrap something to do with the Nazis. And it's suspected that the old data is embedded in the Karnoffel code, which was removed from Hitler's body. And somehow a bunch of spy agencies picked it up. It got handballed between different places. Somehow Game Funa got a hold of it, tried to, and I think this is where Casey comes into. Uh, game Funa tried to make a game out of the Carnoffel code that had the old data in it, and that's how it became digital. 
Yes. Once it was a digital game, Casey discovered that it was dangerous. Yes. Somehow, for the reasons that we're playing in the game, uh, and sought to hide it away by burying it in the forest and keeping the GPS coordinates in, stored in a pack of cards. Yes. That her mother, after her death, her death still being in mysterious circumstances, or whether it was her death or not, seems to not be of much... Um, uh, no one seems to be too certain about that at this stage. But her mother is the one who sold Luke Carter the pack of inscription cards, not knowing that that was in there. And yes. that then leads to the rest of the story. That's correct. That's correct. And I've got to be honest, hearing that, like you hear Hitler attached to anything these days. Yeah. That's a game or a story. Yeah. You're kind of like, okay, so yeah, the Nazis it, were responsible. Yeah, like the Nazis <laughs> were the bad guys. Um. Yeah, the Fourth Reich. Okay, there's four scribes. Yeah. And then you start making a bunch of matchups that, that really detract from it, which it shouldn't. Like no. It- Genuinely, it almost feels like, it It definitely feels like a little bit of a hat on a hat situation because the, yep. med- the meta by itself without all of that background, without all of the unpicking that you end up doing is strong enough That's to stand. Cap. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Hang on. Let me get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. I've played Stray. I'm, I'm yeah. used to it. Just pretend Stray <laughs> is on in the background. Um, but yeah, um, it really feels like, and I mean, this might sound a bit disparaging, but it feels like Daniel Mullins was almost like really kind of reaching a little bit for a bad guy or for a bad thing that he was like, what is something that is super evil that would have to be locked away in order to protect the world? I don't know, something to do with Hitler. And (laughs) that really felt like that was, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't the the thought process, but that kind of felt like it was the thought process and that he was maybe like, this is so deep in the data, so few people are going to like, or, you know, it's not, it's not going to be the primary focus of the game. So it doesn't matter if it doesn't really work that well, because it's not, you know, it's not the secret of the game. It's not the focus of the game. It's just the background for the game. As a counter argument, from a narrative perspective, if he got to that stage of building this world, and he was like, okay, I've created three acts, yeah, four scribes, differing game mechanics, there's secrets everywhere, yeah. uh, I'm manipulating computers, I'm doing all this stuff. Yeah. How, how do I connect the tenuous thread of the old data being so imposing and evil, but how do I explain that in a way that doesn't require more work and more, uh, you know, more red string on on the, the board, yeah. Things, yeah. It, in a way that, that ensures that there's no more brain work needed. Yeah. What is the easiest way to do that? Hitler did it. Yeah, evil Hitler. I, I, think, I think it's very easy for audience, the audience of the game to see Hitler did it. Yeah. Having just been told that the old data is the most dangerous thing on the planet. Yeah. To then fill in all the rest of those connections that have been made by literally every other media that deals with Hitler in the world. Yeah, exactly. There's a bit of a shorthand there that makes it like easier to sort of be like, oh, okay, that's the answer. That's fine. I'm satisfied or whatever. And I think that like, I don't know, I'm sure a lot of listeners, there's like varying degrees of knowledge people have about the way games are made. But when I first entered the games industry... I thought the games were created in a relatively linear fashion, relatively speaking. Not perfectly linear, but 
you know, you would think that somebody would come up with a concept for a story, a concept for a game, I guess, beginning, middle, end, whatever, and then they'd build it out from there. The way that games are made is actually very haphazard. So, like, sometimes games will begin with just, and I mean, at least this game in particular feels to me, and I don't know once again, but it feels to me like he, like, Daniel Mullins came up with the card game from Act 1 and was like, great card game, really fascinating, Um, love it, but, you know, who is this mysterious character that you're playing against? So I think that he probably began with the card game and the card game sort of um, functions rather than coming up with the story to begin with. It definitely felt like it, it was kind of built as it went along rather than being built with like, all right, I've got the whole, you know, first act, second act, third act, beginning to end planned out, you know, it didn't really feel that way. But that's very common in games. For, yes. For people to start with just the ending or just the beginning or just the narrative and not the actual gameplay. It's a very, it's a much less linear experience, I think. <laughs> Definitely. And it could be uh, the perfect argument for why Act 2 is the way it is. Yeah. Like, because he's like, well, where act- do we go now? Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Or how do I tantalize the audience and uh, put them down at the same time yeah. while still keeping them engaged? Yeah. Oh, I'll have Act 1 and 3 be this engaging card game that I've made with varying Mm. mechanics. And then the in-between bit, it's going to need a bit of hard work. Yeah. But we'll build the narrative around it to be tantalizing enough that it will push the players that need to discover more through and discover the rest. Yeah, exactly. Act 2 may have ended up being very low effort. Exactly. just be a framing device for the narrative to connect the choices and be ready when the final game components come into play when you beat PO3 to put on your, I've forgotten what it's called, the, the dual, dual, the dual, dual deck? I think it's a dual deck, yeah. I think the it's The thing a you put on deck. the wrist. Yeah. Referring to the wizard fight there where you just put the cards down. By then you know enough about triangles, squares and circles and colours to be able to play that section and yeah. not get stalled. Yeah. And that may have been, like Act 2 may have been the last bit that they made. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And look, he probably knew that there was going to be 10% of people that played this game that unfurled enough of that story to get to Hitler, factory fires, (laughs) Russian spies, evil game companies. Exactly, exactly. Or actually, well, the funny thing is, in the case of the games company, Game Funa, I think that the Mm -hmm. narrative is actually that given that they tried to hide the code in the game... I think the thought was that they were trying to, or no, Casey did it. Casey, by putting Leshy in charge, she was trying to ensure that nobody ever found the code. Potentially. Anyway, yeah, in a way, I think the games company was trying to do right by keeping it from getting live, but it got live anyway. Yeah, I don't know. It's, but once again, it's Mm. a bit messy, narratively speaking, this. It is. (laughs) This last kind of part. But I think you're right, though, that. Casey put Leshy in charge and that it ties back narratively because there is something additional to the game called Casey's Mod. Yes, yes. That allows you to do an infinite play loop version of that act one. Yes. Knowing that that was the best bit. And from all intents and purposes, Daniel Mullins developed that within a few weeks after release of the game because he reported that there was very few bugs. Like the game was in a much better state than he thought it would be in. Wow. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah, he said- 
There's no bugs, guys. That's so, so I'm weird. just going to make something else instead. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> wow, that's so strange. Yeah. Uh, what a humble flex. <laughs> it, it really was. Like, <laughs> I, I remember hearing about it on on my gaming podcasts of choice at the time. Yeah. Um, and that's how they perceived it too. They were like, man, this guy is saying his game was so perfect. Let's yeah. make more game on top of that. Yeah, I've got exactly. so much free time. I know. Which is never what you hear from game devs. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But anyway, it is 8.30, so we should probably sort of wrap up our last kind of bit. Absolutely. We've, this is, hopefully all of you listening have been listening diligently. <laughs> if you haven't played the game yet, then uh, don't listen diligently and go and play it and enjoy the, the mystery for yourself. Yes. Description was a great game. I think it's it's one of those games that I'll always remember as an experience oh, yeah. to take away and inform the rest of my experiences with yep. the game. What I'm hoping that you will do, Kara, mm. is run away <laughs> and you'll you'll pick up a semblance by Nilo Studios, <laughs> a semblance and a semblance oversight. You'll play those through. We might even do a playthrough together if there's an opportunity to do that. We won't necessarily broadcast it, but I've got a feeling that can do with what you did for your brother. Yeah. A, a helpful hint here or there can really Yeah. Help. Somebody being like, this is what you do, that's what you do, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. This really inane section where there's that one little pixel that tells you exactly what it is. Yeah, that's what that is. Yeah. Push you in the right direction. And once you've played that, yeah. you can come back and we'll do another spoiler cast for what is one of my favorite games and game experiences. Yes. Ah, uh, oh, can't wait. I think that sounds awesome. It's a deal. Awesome. So that was Karatune. If you yeah. want to see her awesome artworks and uh, experience all that cool merchandise that she makes, check out the show notes. There'll be links to her her, uh, her good stuff there. Thank you for hanging around as long as you did for the first edition of hopefully many of the spoiler cast for the Dead Drop podcast. As usual, uh, check out the Instagram at Dead Drop Podcast. Uh, we've got me on Twitter at Matt Bliss Pod. If you'd like to contribute to the network Intel episodes or give me some feedback, Get in touch to do a spoiler cast with me as well. Get in touch by email, deaddroppod at gmail.com. And always join us for the news episodes of The Dead Drop every Monday and Thursday every week. Stay safe. Stay well. You stay well too, Kara. Oh, thank you. I will. <laughs> you <too>. Good. <laughs> and we'll see you here in a couple of days. <laughs>